Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee's Erotic Library. On this podcast, I'm inviting you into my personal library to experience my favorite erotica. All of the volumes that I will read from are on my shelves. Each week, I will treat you to a piece of erotica, either my own or from one of my favorite authors. Some weeks, I will be joined by these amazing authors themselves, and you will have the chance to hear them read their own work. This podcast is being supported by my Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Lori Beth Bisbee. For people who subscribe, you will have access to special interviews with authors and readings and also to special events. So grab your drink of choice, get comfortable, and enjoy a peek into my erotic world. So uh, welcome back to Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee's Erotic Library, and I am here with Shakir Rashan, and this is the interview segment available to all people who join my Patreon as, pa- as patrons. Um, so I guess my first question is the same first question I ask everybody, which is, what got you into writing? Well, these, the, the, the not so short answer was, well, no, let's put it this way. The short, short answer was I actually had a longstanding relationship with my grandfather when I was growing up um, at the age of five, I say maybe five, six years old. And I actually have a blog post on my website that explains that in a little bit more detail. But the idea was, was that he did a lot of reading when he was growing up as a young male and that type of thing. And he saw in me the ability to tell stories just off the top of my head didn't really have to worry about you know where they came from or anything like that whether they made up whether they were true it didn't matter and he would literally when we would be there on weekends he would literally sit down with me and we would have long conversations with regard to what was in my head cultivating the storytelling from an oral perspective not necessarily from a written one, because of course I could speak better than I could write. Uh, but the fact of the fact remained was he was like, okay, well, this particular weekend, I want you to tell me a story about this. Or this particular weekend, I want you to read me this story and then tell me what it was from your perspective and that type of thing. So when you're looking at it, you're looking at your grandfather at five, six years old, and you're like, uh, okay. Because in that point, you know, all eyes were on me at that point. So I didn't care you know, what that looked like. So I was like, okay, cool. So I had my mom give me as many books as I felt I could read at that time because um, it wasn't anything that was, you know, overly ridiculous or, you know, anything like that. It could be just something as simple as, you know, Dr. Seuss or Grimm's Fairy Tales or whatever the case may be. And I was right there front and center and told them what the story was about. And from there, it just took off. It it was a lot of different stories that as I got older, um, I got to read more intricate stories that I could tell from my perspective. And as my as my oral skills started to catch up or start, well, excuse me, as my written skills started to catch up with my oral skills, that's when things kind of really cranked up at that point. So by the time I got to high school, it was over with. I was writing short stories majority of the time. I was writing um, different um just just different thoughts that were in my head before blogging became a thing and that's where it turned out eventually it started into novel-length stuff i think that's so cool um i i love your relationship with your grandfather and i love that he recognized that you 
or a storyteller and that he wanted to cultivate that ability because he found it a valuable ability that he wanted to make sure that you had an actual voice that yes. um that people would hear you and um and shit particularly important considering your background right to actually cultivate your voice and mm -hmm. make sure that um you could speak well and you could explain yourself well so that people would have to understand what you were saying. Nobody could make a mistake about what you were putting across. Yeah, absolutely. It was always in his mind. It was always, it was always measured twice cut once, which in his mind, you know, being, being that he was a carpenter and, and, and did a lot of woodworking and then he was a mechanic as well and, and, and always loved to put puzzle pieces together and different things of that nature. It gave me the understanding of you don't always have to go off the hip when you're trying to come up with answers to questions that people may want from you and that's where he came up with the idea of measure twice cut once you know that's a that's a carpentry term more so than anything else but it actually works in in communication uh level type things it's like let me hear you first hear what you're saying and not necessarily that I got to figure out how to cultivate my answer based on what you're saying, just because we just have to have an adversarial conversation. But at the same time, I need to see, I need to hear what you're saying and then go ahead and figure it out that way. Not that I'm trying to outsmart you, but at the same time, if we're in that kind of relationship, then yeah, maybe. But if it's just one-on-one -on -one conversation, there's no need for me to try to outsmart you. It's just, let me hear it, then we'll speak, and then we'll keep it moving from there. Yeah, th that's so important because that's the part that most people miss. Let me really understand what you're saying first. Let me hear you take the minute to consider it before I open my mouth and speak back, not think about what I'm going to say to you while you're talking, which is a mistake that people make more than people imagine. You know, they're trying to figure out what they're going to say next. They're trying to figure out what their rebuttal is, what their answer is, even in conversations that are not necessarily adversarial. They just, even if they're just excited, you know, they're not actually listening. They're trying to figure out their response. So that lesson has probably stood you in better stead than I guess than most people would be aware that you actually, and I mean, I, I know you, so I, I've experienced this. You really do listen and you listen incredibly well. You're a really good listener. And you consider, and then, you know, you may agree, you may disagree. It doesn't matter. I know when you come back with a response, it's something that is, you've heard me, you've considered what I've said, and then you've made your response, which right. is an amazing talent. Um, it shouldn't be, it should be standard, but it is amazing. <laughs> right. Absolutely agreed. So what do you like best about writing? It is the creative process in and of itself to be able to take what's in my head and be able to uh, put the words together and string them together so that someone else can see what I saw. That probably is the, 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 the best part of the process for me. Um, I've to be able to tell someone and describe what that, what it looks like to someone it's easy to do, but at the same time, it's very easy for that person to forget because you can, you can you can hear the information and it's all gravy and it'll and it'll get you there for maybe a few seconds here and there. Literature is forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's really what it is at the end of the day. Literature is forever. I mean Shakespeare, Tolkien, all of the different writers of 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 the gener over the generations. We're still reading half of them four or five hundred years later. 
who's to say that someone won't be reading me four or five generations down the line? You know, whether it's my grand, whether it's my great grandkids, whether it's my great great grandkids that I probably will never get a chance to see, or anything along those lines. But the the fact remains is that my words will live on. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly one of the things that I like best about writing um, is that there are my words. I, I mean, I started writing when I was um, nine or 10, I started writing poetry. Um, and uh, from there, I started writing prose. And by 12, I was writing erotica, which was really bad erotica, but <laughs> I was writing it. No, it was really bad, like really bad. Like I didn't understand anatomy. So it was <laughs> understood. Um, male anatomy. I understood female anatomy, but I didn't get male anatomy. It was awful. There it is. Um, and no one will ever see it because it was that bad. <laughs> yeah, that part. It. I still have it. So, but um, no, I mean, the idea that um, that I can express myself in written form, I blog, I write nonfiction, and I write some fiction now, um, and that it will still be there. And it's one of the things that um, I found so cool when I was writing the memoir that I was able to actually go back and find th pieces that I'd written contemporaneous with the part of my life I was talking about and mm -hmm. it's like so it's like some of the poetry in the book was written contemporaneous with the part of the book I was talking about some of it was written earlier but it's still like within the time frame of the book and the book starts when I'm um when I'm 12 years old so you know it's it's so cool to me that I can actually look back into how I felt and how I saw the world. Right. And other people will be, whoops, other people will be able to see that as well. Um, and then of course the, the, the flip side of that is because I write personal stuff that that's anxiety provoking as well. <laughs> that of course. Out there. That um, is true. Um, but um, you know, but you, you know, I, I made the choice to do that and, and on the whole, I like that choice. But that is the thing about writing, that it's there and it's permanent and it'll stay there. Yes, very much so. There's no way to misconstrue it. There's no way to twist it for any other, you know, any other purpose as far as that is. The the words are there concrete forever. That's that's the that's the permanence of it. And being able to look back on it and go, Okay, that's what I was at that stage in my life. You know, there's a lot of different things. I mean, I my 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 one pro, my one promise to myself is that even when I got into my um, when I got into my retirement years, that this would be my second life. Yeah, yeah, I know, and that's amazing. And I mean, I'm doing more and more now as well, and I'm loving it. Um, and also, I, I guess I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't change my words from when I was younger. And I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, but I was really clear that, um, you know, I might make certain language smoother in certain circumstances, but for the most part, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change the viewpoint that came across, um, even if I've learned since then, even if I, I think better of it that now, that, that I makes sense. own my younger self. That yeah. makes sense. And yeah, I would give that the makes context. Sense. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. It, it, it's always an evolution. You always want to you always want to evolve and move forward. You don't want to ever devolve. You don't ever want to feel like you're you're trying to, I guess, stifle yourself for the times that they are at this at, at that stage of at, at that stage of human evolution. I guess is the word I'm looking for. 
um, there's always going to be room to move to the next level. There's always going to be room to move to whatever the next, uh, the, the, the next big thing is, I guess is the word I'm looking for. So there's always room for growth. I think writing has always been that for me, anything, I you know, other people can disagree, you know, as far as that is, but it, it gives you the ability to not only see your growth, but to figure out whether or not you have. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, I, I would not disagree with that. I mean, there are times where you look at something and you and I, I've gone, oh, wow, well, I haven't really moved on from that. And I really should, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I or mean, you'd be amazed when you're exa- when you're exercise. I mean, people people don't realize like, OK, yes, everyone has a story, but not everyone can know. Not everyone has the ability to tell it. You know, there's a story inside every human being. We don't argue that point as far as that is. What we argue as professionals is that you've not taken the time to cultivate and give people the idea and understanding of how this looks and how it how it can be housed, how it can be portrayed, how it can be illuminated for other people to see. That is the that that is not something you can just pick up overnight and decide I can do this. That's not how this works no there it takes you know people underestimate the amount of practice it takes to write well um, yes and um and to figure out which parts you know like everybody has a story but there are parts that aren't necessary they may feel necessary for you to tell but in writing they may not come across as well you know i mean it's one mm-hmm. of the things in trying to sit down somebody asked me um recently having um read my memoir well like why didn't you talk about this Mm -hmm. i know this because i'm i've been in your life so i know this happened and all this why did you not talk about that and i said because um and they were asking about sort of health challenges why didn't i talk about health challenges um and you know people who listen to me know i have autoimmune disease and blah 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 and okay you know there's a lot of stuff around that but why did right. I write about that when I was writing the erotic memoir? And I was like, because the storyline didn't flow. And I was, when you craft something, you don't craft it like you're telling daily life because there's lots of parts of our lives that are boring, right? People, and, have, people have this idea that you're supposed to, as you're writing, you're, that you're supposed to literally try to please every demographic that can be had within the pages of one book. And that is virtually impossible to do. I mean, J.K. Rowling wrote 800-page books and still didn't cover everybody. So I'm confused. You know, Tolkien, same thing. You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy I know is at least somewhere in the neighborhood of about a good 1,800 pages, if I'm not mistaken. 1800 pages and you're still not going to get, you're not going to cover every aspect of Middle Earth life. It wasn't going to happen as far as that was. So he had to focus on what was the most compelling to be able to get people to listen to the story. If you try to pack everything in, you're going to bore people. You don't realize who you're going to bore. You don't know what aspects that they're going to be bored by. So you do your best to cultivate it in such a manner where it's most compelling for the majority of people that are going to be reading you anyway. Well, and, 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 and the thing is, is that part of what happens is that people fill the rest in with their imagination. And isn't that the whole point? 
stories aren't read so that you're fed that and you don't expand on it. At least that's not the way I read, right? Mm -hmm. When I read, when I read, I read your words, your world. And then I imagine, I end up imagining bits and pieces about your characters. If you've written good characters, I live in the story for a while. I'll dream it. I won't want to end. I want to read and it that's and that's the ultimate that's the ultimate point of it all is that you don't necessarily you don't necessarily need to see yourself inside of the characters that are that the person is writing you may want to see yourself inside that world i'd rather you see yourself inside my world than you see yourself inside of one of my characters because if you can't see yourself inside my world with regard to everything that's going on with those characters what the fuck was the point of me writing a book to begin with well, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing for me, the stuff that I love is that I can put myself in the world. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not relating to a character or somebody's characters. And I know that some people read to relate to, to the characters. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, and they're more than welcome. They're more than welcome to be selfish in that, in that singular pursuit. That's not the idea of reading in it of itself, being a reader, understanding that character and, and understanding that character's world in terms of the world that they live in is the more important thing now if you're looking for a more singular focus in terms of you're looking for the whatever the romantic relationship is whatever the friendship room the the friendship relationship is whatever the case may be if you're focusing on that then okay fine then you may not find it in a lot of people's works that you may come across at that point but if you've got someone who can create an entire world whether it's based in complete fantasy, whether it's based in a fictional account of the city or the, or the state or the country or the part of the world that you live in, and you can literally sit yourself down in a chair somewhere and watch all of this play out the way that he, will, he or she was describing, you can't get any better than that. Yeah, I know. I think about one of my favorite worlds, um, and it's a series of three books, and I first came across them in 1984, so that tells you something right there. Um, and I live in one of the characters, in and out I've adopted one of the characters over the years, but I live in the world, and that's where I first started. And I, I read it, I probably reread the series every, I don't know, three, four years now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I probably reread this. I can't even tell you how many times. It's ridiculous. And initially, I reread it every year, and I lived in that world. And and I guess it also depends on what kind of a reader you are. I mean, I was a reader. I started reading uh, very young, and um, I started living in books when I was six, seven years old. Um, mm -hmm. I was not uh, the most popular girl. I was. Um, I didn't understand the rules to fit in <laughs> at all. <laughs> and um, and I still don't understand the rules to fit in. I've just found people to hang out with who also don't understand the rules to fit in. That's not entirely true. I can pass now, but I certainly couldn't pass then. Um, and I don't try to pass now, which is the fun part. Um, <laughs> and so books for me were a way to make friends. I lived with the characters. These were my friends. These were the important people to me. And that was my escape. It was my way of feeling okay. It was my way of, you know, I would read characters who were kind of as strange as I was, who would succeed. And that was important mm -hmm. because I saw that eventually I could socially succeed. I mean, there's all that sort of stuff that required being able to live in the world. So I think um, for me, that is the way that it works. I know for other people, they, they kind of, if they can't see themselves in the characters, they don't get anywhere. But that's never been the case for me. Agreed. And I have no arguments with that either. 
um, I think what what happens with a lot of I'm being, I, I mean when you're looking at when you're looking at just just books themselves whether they're graphic novels whether they are actual novels you know literary novels and things of that nature you find yourself trying to figure out if you can fit into that world which is how I became Wakandan like 35 years ago because I found myself inside of that country I found myself realizing that that was where my kin was and I could not find anything else I didn't care about anything else all that mattered to me was what could I do to stay in that particular world so when you're looking at it from that perspective, whether it was me being Wakandan, whether it was me being inside of Middle Earth, whether it was me being inside of the Star Wars, uh, the Star Wars uh, um, uh, universe in that particular regard. From a naval perspective, I was actually wanting to be a part of the U.S. Navy at one point in time, which is where my love for Star Trek came from, because it was built upon the U.S. Navy. Yeah. So looking through all of that, that looking through all of those different prisons, looking through all of those different worlds, it gave me a more comprehensive view of things. And that's all that literary fiction, graphic novels, that's all that they really help with in a lot of instances is that it gives you a wholly different perspective unlike your own. Have you ever thought about writing fan fiction? And what do you think about fan fiction? I have never had a problem with fan fiction. Um, I think my 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 idea of appropriating characters for my own uh, uh, fictional pursuits is not something that I enjoy doing on a large scale. Um, I have done different television shows that I have found myself uh, attached to a lot of times. I actually did fan fiction for Scandal well uh, within the first two years of it as far as that was um, just because I imagine I reimagine different conversations and different relationships between the central and principal characters within Scandal as far as that was because I felt like okay I felt like these two people need to be together I don't know how the hell they ended up getting together but I'm gonna do it my way as far as that was <laughs> and with with any fan fiction artist and fan fiction writer, that's exactly all they're doing is going, wait a minute, they could have had a hell of a more in, they would have had a more intense or more important or more entertaining relationship had these two got together. Or, you know, they, this, this would be so much more intense if these two were enemies as opposed to these two being enemies. So it's a lot of different things that do come up to, that do come to the plate at that point. I don't ever have, a, I see it more of, I see it more as a, um, as a flatter, as a flattery than anything else, because these people have created characters that have resonated with such a large base that people feel the need to reimagine it as they saw fit, because it made it, it, it made them enjoy things on that particular front. I have a problem with people who try to profit, and that's all I. Uh, the profit end of the spectrum, I think, is what irritates more than anything else, because it's almost like you're taking the characters that I imagined and that res resonated with you, but now you're taking my characters and you're trying to create doppelgangers for your own profit. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to be okay with that. Well, and that brings to kind of like the issue around money and writing. And I mean, this is something I've talked with lots of authors about. And um, 
I still don't understand why most authors can't make a living wage doing this um, full time. And, uh, and, you know, when I say that it is most authors, I mean, the JK Rowlings of the world make enough money to live on. There's no issue there, but um, there, are lots, there are lots of people who are incredibly good authors with great fan bases who still don't make enough money to be authors full time. And there's something about, um, uh, first of all, I mean, about the way the publishing industry is and all of that, but that accepting that aside, one of the big issues is that people aren't buying books in the same way that they used to. Yes. Um, and that, that because of that, people have begun to expect to get stuff for free. Um, mm -hmm. It's this really weird, I mean, you and I were, you know, you were privy to a conversation where somebody was talking about um, that there was a, um, a weekend event that happened this weekend that I didn't attend for reasons. Mm -hmm. um, yes. but, um, it was an online event and they were asking for donations, which was perfectly appropriate as far as I was concerned. But somebody- Yeah, was, absolutely. Yeah, somebody was saying, you know, oh, well, I don't, I don't pay money for online events. I don't do donations and I don't pay money, money for online events. And it was said in a way to me that suggested that it was inappropriate to ask for money for that. And as somebody who does a lot of online training and a lot of online work with people, if I didn't charge money for what I do for my vocation, then I wouldn't be able to feed my family. So there's no reason why I shouldn't charge money just because I'm seeing someone online, just because an event is online. To me, it's like you're paying for my time and my expertise, whether I'm online or whether I'm standing there in person. Um, I think you do a lot of things for free, but there are also, I don't balk when somebody says, could you give a donation for this? Because I know how much people put into it. And it's, I think people, I think, is, I think there are two schools of thought when it comes to that. There is this, there is this idea that the, um, there is this idea that because you are paying for internet access, that it all of a sudden kind of gives a pass for everything else. Like, okay, yes, I've gotten, I've gotten to, I, I'm, I'm able to pay for access to get to this free enterprise, internet, all this other stuff, blah, blah, blah. So now, as far as they're concerned, they shouldn't have to pay for all of these other things that come with their internet service as it is. That, that, that's the one misnomer that comes along with it because nine times out of 10, you're looking at people, depending on the type of speed that they're trying to access, you're looking at anywhere between 40 and maybe $80 a month with regard to internet access. So they're already paying what they feel is an exorbitant pricing for internet access. So as far as they're concerned, anything over and above that is now starting to dip into a budget that they really do not intend on uh, cultivating in that particular regard. And then you combine that with the fact that there are so many different, um, there are so many different seminars and conferences and, and classes that are being offered for free that now asking for a monetized value of that service or that, uh, or that class or that conference or that seminar now becomes a anti-capitalist view. That's where we start to get at at this particular point now. So the fact that, and, and you, we've seen it inside of the community in and of itself. We've not, we, we are so predicated on the idea that everything that we're providing, we're providing for a, uh, for the betterment of the community in and of itself on the whole. And to profit from it, it seems evil 
because there are normal people who are trying to put these things together and they're not really making a profit off of it. So why should you? Well, and yeah, and yet, and yet people are paying, right? And when yes. people pay to attend things, you know, the, the reality is, is that if I'm, you know, when I was traveling, I'd be paying my airfare, I'd be paying my hotel room. Agreed. At some of eight events, I didn't pay my hotel room, but I was always paying my airfare and I'm coming from England. So the reality is I'm significantly out of pocket mm -hmm. and I'm giving my time. I'm not, you know, if I'm going to something and I'm going to present and people are like, well, you're there to have a good time. No, when you go to an event and you're presenting, your time, is, your time is not your own. You are working the entire event. If you get yeah, an it's hour, work. yeah, if you get an hour off to sit down and have a meal with friends, that's amazing. If you do a scene that you're working because people are looking at what you're doing because you're there as a presenter. So mm -hmm. it isn't, it isn't fun the giving someone a free pass. Isn't saying it isn't encouragement in my view for me to present because I'm working the whole weekend and I know it. Agreed. I don't mind doing that in certain, in certain situations. And I don't mind doing it for free in certain situations, but there is this attitude well, you should give X, Y, Z, and W to the community. And then once COVID happened, you should do that. And you should do give all these things online for free because, you know, people are being affected. Well, the reality is, is that... Everyone's being affected, period. That's right. and, and in my view, people should be paid for their work. It, you know, if you want to choose to give stuff for free, and I do, I do, so, I do a certain amount of pro bono every single year. Um, mm -hmm. And that includes speaking and that includes private clients pro bono. It includes all sorts of stuff that I do every single year. Um, and I don't just do it like the 30 minutes, the 30 minutes free that I might give as an intro. I, that's not my pro bono work. I don't count that. Right. Mm -hmm. I agree. That, that's a means to an end, perhaps. Um, my pro bono work is when I give work, when I do work with people who can't afford me. And I do some of that every single year, as well as speaking for free every single year. But this mm -hmm. weird thing in their head, and it's the same as with writing. It's this weird thing that, that one shouldn't have to pay out for entertainment. One shouldn't have to pay out for education because it should be free for all. Except that the people who, that, who are providing it need to make a living. Uh, so if agreed. you want good stuff, you've got to pay for it. And it's the thing with writers is that if you want people to write good stuff that you can enjoy, then you need to pay for it. You yes. need to recognize the work that's going into that and not have the entitlement bit. And that's the part that bothers me. Yes, absolutely. I see authors that I know who are phenomenal, who write and, and write well and write a lot. And, you know, their Patreon is what supports them. Mm -hmm. Agreed. It shouldn't be that way. They should get in, they should be getting more income from their books right it's okay that their patreon tops them up that's cool yeah. but it shouldn't be what's supporting them agreed and that's really what that's that's what that's where we are at this point it's the reason why it's the reason why patreon exists it's the reason why only fans exist because it was the only way that sex workers could really get a uh could really develop a following and develop a following and also get paid at the same time as far as that is you know and then all of a sudden it, that got corrupted like everything else gets corrupted but it is what it is but at the same time that's the only way at this point because you do still have because when it comes to sex workers it's still you still have people who frequent um sites that do not that that give up free content so you have to find a way to balance the scale some kind of way i mean i've got people who prefer uh, matter of fact, I had this conversation the other night with a colleague where 
you know, she was like, there, the, the, this, this is what people are doing with regard to Kindle Unlimited. And I'm like, I don't want to participate in Kindle Unlimited. And if I do, I am not putting a book that is, that I normally would charge for all intents and purposes, a cup of coffee at Starbucks because someone wants to read for pennies on the dollar, you know, as far as that is. Because Kindle Unlimited is $10 a month to read everything that you want to read that people make available at that particular point. The problem with that is, is that most of the shit or most of the, most of the content that's on Kindle Unlimited, I'm sorry to say it's trash. And the reason, and that's the reason why is because people are saying, you know, uh, artists are saying, yo, why am I putting my best work on Kindle Unlimited and they're not buying the other stuff? I mean, that's usually the whole point of Kindle Unlimited is, okay, you get to see a taste of what I got to offer. Now you can come over to the other side and come get the other stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. And you no, and it never know. does. It, it never I, does. And you and I both know that. And the reality is, is that it, is that you don't get it paid enough anyway. So if you're putting mm. out, like you, when, you, when you say, you put out a short story that, that is, is the, you know, the, the amount of a cup of coffee and you put it out as a Kindle single, why shouldn't you be paid for that? I mean, really, why should you give that away for free? Mm-hmm. Because Agreed. The, amount, the amount you're being paid for it is, is ridiculously little anyway. You know, those of us who are old enough remember when, you know, there was nothing that you were reading on Kindle. Let's be real here. Everything Absolutely. And there was no such thing as getting a free book, right? Yeah, and, and there those, was none. No. Unless, unless, that author, unless that author had enough of a following and they had enough capital to be able to do so, whether it was the author copies that they got as a part of their book deal or whatever the case may be, and they threw a and they threw a giveaway that way. As far as that is, you don't have that anymore because it's simple to simply it's it's to the point now where it's simply you're able to go to cam you're able to go to Amazon, books a million, books Barnes and Noble, the iTunes store, whatever the case may be, and pick up the electronic copy. Now the problem with the electronic copy is is that you of course can house several hundred on the on your on your actual platform but now you got people who just literally just stack books to stack books to stack books and they they're saying that they're trying to do it in the in in the sense of uh supporting the author but the only way that you're going to be able to understand who's reading your book is whether you like it or not giving a review giving commentary to that author especially when we make ourselves so awesome we've probably made ourselves more accessible than at any time in literary history at one point in time the only way you were going to get in touch or even get a chance to even get a c or or wave at an author is at their book signing book signings are now a part of the past now they don't they just don't exist it's simple now you can easily send an email, you can instant message, you can have a video call, all of the things that bring the world, sm that make the world smaller than what it used to be. That's what, that's the difference. And electronic books, unfortunately, have become a part of that existence. It's put us in a position to where we've gone the way as the musicians have gone. They have the only way that they can survive now is by streams, by by actual streams. They don't sell CDs anymore. They don't sell um, 
you know, they, I, I think maybe Spotify might be the closest thing, if I'm not mistaken, you know, as far as that is. But, you know, now, but then at the same time, you still have an underground, you know, person-to-person download market that has been created with different apps, apps that, you know, take the money out of the pockets of those artists, as far as that is. So it's just, as you create a certain level, there becomes an underbelly to that level. And that's where we are now. And it is unfortunate. I mean, you know, I still think there's nothing but an actual physical book in my hands. You know, I do read on Kindle, but it's not unusual to find that I've paid for a paper copy of something and also an electronic copy of something because for convenience, I might want the electronic copy at some point. Um, Because I I still find the paper copies. I like to hold books. I like to feel books. There... What we what we probably need to do moving forward is we need to actually make libraries hot again. Okay. Amen. That's we need to make personal libraries hot again. I have I even had one person, I even had one woman who literally put on her page, um, if you want to if you want to find out if you want to fuck if you want to fuck somebody make them get make them send you a copy of their library send you a pic of their library if they don't have a library don't fuck them no shit that's um that's definitely part of my view um i do talk you know that that's really what it is i mean because you because that means these people have invested in more than just physical appearance absolutely and and then you know the other thing is is that is that I don't know that many people realize this. I know this for a fact because of my oops, because of my nonfiction. But when people borrow my books from the library, the actual physical library, you remember those things where lending books happens? Yeah, that part. Um, and even when they bought, when, even when they borrow through the electronic lending library, I get paid. Yes, very much so. Right. So even if you if you're saying, well, I can't really afford to buy a, buy a book or blah blah blah, you go You'll take your ass to the library. Take it out of the library because we still get paid when that happens. Um, Absolutely. If anything, it influences the number of books that they actually house in the in the physical or in the electronic library because they have to buy those, you know, in order to be able to have them lend out. Because it's much like a physical library, the electronic library only has so many copies. And once those copies have been lended out, then you've got to wait. Same as if you were going into a physical library. That would influence those people that have the, the library purchaser, the, the, the people who are actually purchasing for the inventory, that would actually influence them to go ahead and buy some more copies from you because more people are trying to check out your work. And it's not expensive to do that. So like in preference to Kindle Unlimited where you're not going to get the best of an author's work, it's actually cheaper to belong to a library and borrow from the library, just saying. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely wonderful. Always fun. Always fun. Okay, guys. So next week, um, as I said, I have no idea, but it'll be something fun. Uh, I want you to have yourself a great week. Please tell other people about this. If there's an author you want to hear or there's an author that you want me to read, because sometimes they don't particularly want to read themselves. Oops, sorry, guys. Um, But they're really happy for me to do the reading please email me at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com. You can find a copy of my memoir on uh, drlauribethbisbee.press. 
That's the easiest way. I am on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and a variety of other independent book outlets. Um, but that is the easiest place. There are links to the Amazon and other places there, as well as the possibility of getting signed copies. If you're actually going to buy a physical book and you want it signed, you can get it from there. Um, and if you have questions or comments, also email me, lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.press, and I will see you all next week. Have a hot and healthy week. Thanks for joining me on this erotic adventure. Join me again next week for more exciting erotica. Visit my websites, drlauribethbisbee.com and drlauribethbisbee.press for more information about what I'm doing and what services are available. Check out my weekly internet radio show, The A to Z of Sex, on the Health and Wellness Channel, voiceamerica.com, Thursdays at 11 a.m. PST, 2 p.m. EST, 7 p.m. BST, and that's a live show. If you've got suggestions for this show or authors you'd like to hear, email me at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.press. Have a great week.